I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. All right. Hello, Miss Keegan. Hello, Madigan. So we were just chatting about how we're both kind of feeling in a weird headspace again, but this is all to be expected. But what Keegan said rings true. We got to show up anyways. Yep. That's kind of where I'm at because I've been in a anxiety and depression spiral for the last like several days. Like, honestly, this is actually kind of comical in a way if you want to try and find some humor in this situation. But I started a whole new skincare routine and it's made my face really like sensitive. And I've been crying so much that my face hurts because, because there's, you know, obviously there's like salt in your tears and then my face is so like sensitive from the products, (laughs) um, which is sad, uh, but also kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the moment it's not funny. And then later in hindsight, it'll be funny, but yeah, I just, I actually just had a great coffee time with my friends and I was just saying, you know, I was kind of supporting Max through some anxiety this morning. And then I think when I, kind of like stopped and like didn't have anybody else around. I just suddenly kind of felt weird. Um, but I'm glad that we are here doing this because honestly, recording always makes me feel better. And talking about something else that's really horrible might get our minds off of what's horrible in our lives right now. So um, yeah. should we get started, Miss Keegan? Yes, let's go ahead and get started. So today we wanted to talk about Japanese internment camps. So on this show, I know we have said in the past that we do want to try and shift focus onto other minority groups that maybe we haven't focused on as much up until this 
point because uh, we do have Black History Month um, that we put a lot of focus and energy into that. We put focus and energy into um, Latin History Month last year. Uh, and then, of course, we always put focus on women's issues. But we haven't spent as much time talking about other minority groups. And this is a really good opportunity to have this conversation. I know um, whenever it's, I mean, of course, it's still going on. There are kids in cages at the border. There are lots of people still continuing to be detained uh, from Central and South America in this country. But I remember whenever the news of that was really ramping up, that a lot of people were comparing it to this situation that happened to Japanese Americans in the United States uh, during World War II. So yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that and the history of it and what life was like inside of those camps. Exactly. Um, So what these internment camps were as they were forced relocation by the U.S. government of thousands of Japanese Americans to detention camps after World War One and after um, Pearl Harbor. So they kind of started their distrust of Japanese Americans after World War One and then after Pearl Harbor, which we'll get into more a little bit later, I'm, I'm sure. Um, that's when a lot of the racism started really amping up. Um, But it's interesting with the term internment camps, a lot of websites stated that a lot of the people that survived these camps really disliked the use of the word internment to describe the prisons that they were in, because that kind of implies that they were enemy aliens when they weren't. They were people who lived in the United States and have lived here for a very long time. And so they believe that maybe incarceration or detention is better than referring to that, referring to it as an internment camp. Right. I've even seen some go as far as to say that they were imprisonment camps because they were being held against their will. And uh, to your point about using the term internment, I watched a video on YouTube. YouTube has a history.com video uh, that basically they took a video from the 1940s while Japanese Americans were being interned. Uh, And this video was made by the American War Council for Motion Pictures. So it was essentially propaganda. And if you watch this video, it's actually really upsetting because the way they talk about it they they call it migration. They don't call mm-hmm. it forced relocation. They never yeah. say anything that implies that these people don't want to be doing this. In fact, they they say things like Japanese Americans cheerfully gathered to sign each other up to register uh, and and things like this. Or they couldn't wait to start working and the uh, they were treated so well and the military prov- generously provided nutritious meals for them. And it's it's such a strange thing to watch. It's such but a that lie. kind of propaganda. Well, yeah, because it was that kind of propaganda. Of course, the American people wanted to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. They knew that something was going on in these people were being relocated and it made them feel a whole lot better to hear people say how good they had it and how Japanese Americans wanted to be doing this thing so that they could play their part in the war effort. Right. It probably eased the minds of the general public who are probably, you know, either confused or scared when a lot of this started because there luckily were a lot of people that was against the relocation of these Japanese Americans. So 
to the regular person, seeing them happily signing up, playing sports, because there were even some websites that I was reading where they were like, conditions weren't that bad in the camps. Oh, yeah. And I was oh, like, yeah. really? Like I highlighted some of those passages. Uh, it was because- interesting because I was like, from what I've read, doesn't sound like it was that much fun. <laughs> well, and regardless, it, it, to me, p- shifting focus onto that is so unnecessary because even if conditions were fine, uh, which as we will talk about, um, they weren't always fine. I'm sure that there were instances of people who, who survived the camps with, you know, very little difficulty, but there were a lot of people who didn't. It did depend on who was in charge of the camps because there were different groups that were in charge of different camps. So if you were in a camp that, uh, was run by an organization that was maybe a little bit more tough, but then you wouldn't have had a good time. (laughs) But the point kind of, it's kind of a moot point regardless. Like it doesn't really matter how well the camps were kept up. The fact that these people were being detained against their will in the first place, um, largely due to paranoia is, is a huge, huge issue. So let's, Let's talk a little bit about Pearl Harbor. Now, I know we have a lot of listeners who are not from the United States. Everybody in the United States knows about Pearl Harbor. I'm sure people in other countries know about Pearl Harbor as well. There's a great movie with Josh Hartnett, Ben Affleck, and oh my God, what's the woman's name? Why can't I think of the actress's name right now? All I can ever think about is the fact that that's the first place I ever saw Jennifer Gardner and she's in like two scenes. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember who the lead woman is. I don't I remember. I can't remember. Kate Beckinsale? No. Yes, it, it is. Is that it's, it? It is Kate Beckinsale. And um, yeah, I, I would say great might be a loose term. Really? I <laughs> loved that movie growing up. I was obsessed with that. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I was obsessed with that movie growing up. I mean, I, it's a love story. It's not like super historically accurate, but it's, it's so fun to watch. It's very much a love story. Like it's kind of like um, Titanic sort of yes, like where it's yes. like it's a lot of focus is on this love triangle more so mm-hmm. than the actual uh, yes. history of Pearl Harbor. Right. Uh, but but so it's, a, it's Harbor, a fun watch. <laughs> it is. It is a fun watch. And it's very like early 2000s. Yeah. I had such a crush on Josh Hartnett when I was little. And he's also from Bloomington, Minnesota, which is like in the Twin Cities. We so all I was did. Like, so I was like, I'm going to get married to him because he's from Minnesota and I'm from Minnesota. We all had crushes on him and then he did Penny Dreadful and then he disappeared. And now he I don't know. Appeared. He's living. He's living a hot life somewhere. <laughs> you know, that's all I care about. So, so Pearl, Pearl Harbor is a U.S. naval base uh, near Honolulu, Hawaii, and it was the scene of a surprise attack by Japanese forces on December 7th, 1941. So just after 8 a.m., and it was a Sunday morning, um, there were a lot of Japanese, hundreds of Japanese fighter planes that descended on the base where they managed to destroy or damage nearly 20 American naval vessels, including eight battleships and over 300 airplanes. More than 2,400 Americans died in the attack, including civilians, and another 1,000 people were wounded. Um, So the day after that, uh, FDR, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he asked Congress to declare war on Japan. So this is kind of the thing that propelled America into the Second World War. Up until this point, we were kind of 
hesitant to join the war effort um, and Mm -hmm. to join the Allied forces. Uh, So it was this attack that really precipitated um, us joining. Definitely. And after the attack, the government started suspecting that the Japanese-American civilians were spies, espionage, espionage, I can't say that word, espionage Mm -hmm. agents. Wow, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize I can read it so easily when I try to say it out loud. It's so difficult. Um, Despite that there was evidence that showed that these Japanese-Americans were not spies, they were just living their lives here. There was also something called the Roberts Commission Report, and this was an investigation into the Pearl Harbor attack, and it accused persons of Japanese ancestry of espionage leading to the attack. Um, So then political leaders started recommending that we round up all of the Japanese Americans and place them in detention centers inland off of the island of Hawaii, because back in the... Let's see. Back in the eight, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s was when a lot of Japanese uh, people started immigrating to the United States. And most of them went to Hawaii, but a lot of them also went to the West Coast, like California, Colorado, Wyoming, places like that. So, so they brought everybody inland from Hawaii. Yeah. And at this point in time, Hawaii was not a state yeah. yet. Hawaii was just a U.S. territory. So if we're talking about the mainland United States, uh, Los Angeles had the highest population of Japanese Americans in our country. Uh, And some of what their justification was for removing uh, Japanese Americans away from the coasts in particular was because there were these fish markets or Japanese farmers um, in large quantities, big communities in Los Angeles. And many of them were within sight of naval bases or air force bases. So they had this paranoia that Japanese Americans could be spies uh, who were living in the United States. And that if they were working particularly in some of these like fish markets that were within view of these naval bases that they would be able to track U.S. movement and report that back to uh, Japan. Exactly. So So there was this guy named Major Carl Benditson and Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt, who were heads of the Western Defense Command, and they questioned Japanese Americans' loyalty. So they were coming out with quotes such as, I don't want any of them here. They are a dangerous element. There is no way to determine their loyalty. It makes no difference whether he is an American citizen. He is still a Japanese. American citizenship does not necessarily determine loyalty, but we must worry about the Japanese all the time until he is wiped off the map. Like that's some Hitler crazy shit to me. It absolutely is. The racism um, in this situation, the xenophobia was off the charts. Yeah, and, and in, our, well, in our federal, federal government and in some really important organizations, this racism was so heavy. And that's why it turned out as badly as it did. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about this more as we move through it. But two thirds of the people who ended up on these camps were born in the United States. They mm-hmm. were Americans. They considered themselves to be Americans. There was a portion of them, oftentimes their parents or their grandparents, uh, who are first-generation immigrants who came straight from Japan. But two-thirds of the people who winded up in these camps were American-born uh, Americans. Uh, 
So at the beginning of February in 1942, the War Department created 12 restricted zones along the Pacific coast and established nighttime curfews for Japanese Americans within them. Individuals who broke curfew were subject to immediate arrest. So you could see it moving like very quickly after Pearl Harbor, you saw these changes being made. So before right. people were being actually asked to go register to be round up uh, and move to these camps, they were already starting to um, instate some of these curfews and restrictions right. on largely Japanese communities. And it's really, it's, it's stunning how quickly all of this escalated because what we're talking about is the beginning of February 1942 when the War Department created these 12 restricted zones. Um, but by February 19th, 1942, FDR has signed Executive Order 9066, which gave U.S. military the authority to exclude anyone from designated areas. And in fact, the word Japanese never appeared in the order, but it was very clear in the writing what the intentions were. And there were also some camps that had uh, Germans and Italians um, in them as well, but it, the biggest numbers were the Japanese. Yes. So I have, and I'm not sure if this is right or not, but this would even expedite the timeline. I have that it was February 9th, 1942. Oh, so it was, it, it could was have been literally, a typo for me. it was literally days later, I yeah. believe. Um, so after they started putting these restrictions on these communities, days later, he signs this executive order. And you're right, they were very careful to avoid putting the word Japanese in this order. Mm -hmm. um, and there were people, and I have actually the numbers on that. <clears throat> later on in my notes, there were people of other descent that were in some of these camps, not all of them. There were some that were strictly Japanese camps, um, but there were people of other descent in some of these other camps. Yeah, uh, as paranoia of other countries grew, probably. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's possible that they left the language as vague as possible so that they would be able to do that. Right. Um, but it was very clear that their main target, just like in World War II in Nazi Germany, their main target w were Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, they still rounded up and killed other groups of people as well. Um, and while, of course, our government wasn't rounding up people for execution uh, or elimination, necessarily, they were rounding them up for detention. Exactly. So on March 18th, 1942, the War Relocation Authority was established, and its mission was to, quote, take all people of Japanese descent into custody, surround them with troops, prevent them from buying land, and return them to their former homes at the close of the war. So to me, that just sounds like, okay, we're going to we're gonna round them up so we can keep I'll keep an eye on all of them. Make sure they're mm -hmm. not doing anything wrong. And then as soon as the war is over, although they told a lot of the Japanese Americans that they would be able to return to their American homes, they even would, you know, they would give their cars to neighbors to hold on to. Um, they really thought that they were going to be able to come back to the United States and go on with life as usual, where the government really wanted to uh, remove all Japanese Americans from the United States entirely. Right. So the first people to kind of be arrested or rounded up were Japanese community leaders. There were 1,200 Japanese community leaders who were arrested and the assets of all accounts in the U.S. branches of Japanese banks were frozen. Because as we know, whenever communities start growing, 
very often a lot of communities in the United States are very insular. That's how you know that there's like, a, you know, you see Chinatown or you see little Armenia or communities who have gotten right. together and kind of like, like joined together. And um, so there were U.S. branches of Japanese banks that a lot of these people banked at and all of their assets were frozen. So um, at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack, approximately 125,000 Japanese Americans lived on the mainland United States. And as you said, there were about 200,000 living in Hawaii as well. So huge numbers really of like Japanese Americans. Um, So whenever they started rounding people up, it started on the West Coast. Japanese Americans were ordered to report to control stations and register the names of all family members. They were told when and where they should report uh, for removal to a camp. And they were given only about three or four days. Some of them were given a little bit longer, up to two weeks is what I saw, uh, to settle their affairs and gather their belongings but when they were told that they could gather their belongings, it was really whatever they could carry. Because again, when I was watching this um, history.com video that was a propaganda video put out by our government talking about their relocation or rather their migration, as yeah. he said, um, they made it sound like the U.S. government was very graciously providing them with the means to move, providing them with um, moving vans and helping them move their belongings. But in reality, the families were really only able to take what they could carry. So in many cases, individuals and families were forced to sell some or all of their property, including businesses within that period of time. And of course, there were people mostly white people, uh, who took advantage of the situation, knowing that they only had a very short amount of time to settle their affairs. Some offered unreasonably low sums of money for property and possessions. So they knew they had to sell these businesses. They had no other um, choice. They knew they were going to have to get rid of these possessions. And they only had a few days to a couple of weeks to do it. So people would step in and be like, I'll buy your business. I'll give you hundred dollars for your business or whatever. And so yeah, they, well, watched they were desperate for everything that they had worked so hard for in this country. Right. Be, be destroyed. Yeah. So it was really just sad. It is. So the first camp that was in op- operation was Manzanar, which was located in Southern California. Did you see specifically in Southern California where it was Keegan? Because I'm really curious. I didn't see specifically where it was. I do know that, um, the, Santa Anita racetrack uh-huh. uh, was an internment camp. I think I'd heard during that this before. time. Yeah, they turned the Santa Anita racetrack, which is not far from you and I, into an internment camp. I don't think that that's the same as the Manzanar. The Manzanar is one of the most famous, probably yeah. the largest one in the country um, that I'm aware of. Right. But I'm not exactly sure what part of California it's in. No. I'm gonna look it up. I'm really curious. Okay. The Manzanar National Park is in Inyo County, California. Yeah, I don't know where that is. It's still well. This is actually really cool. It looks like it is a, yeah, it's a historic site now, and you can go. It's like a national park. You can go and learn all about this tragedy in person. There's, and that's something I actually think I would like to do. Yeah, there's to learn more about it. Driving, biking, and walking guided tours. 
photographers of Manzanar and artists of Manzanar. That's really cool. That is cool. Won't be able to go for a while though. No, we will not. <laughs> no, unfortunately. So that was the that was the first camp that opened. And between 1942 and 1945, 10 camps would open, which would hold approximately 120,000 people for varying periods of time in Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and Arkansas. Right. In addition to California. So yeah. they wanted to yeah. move people further inland. So I think in the... Um, like we said, things were moving very, very quickly after Pearl Harbor. They wanted to basically immediately get Japanese Americans off the coast. Right. And so, so I think in order for them to do that, they set up these camps very quickly in California. Like like we said, there were a couple of camps in California. Uh, but I think their ultimate goal was really to push them further inland, which is right. why, I mean, they got they got so far east as Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um and it should be said also that Japanese Americans weren't, uh, many Japanese Americans were not used to living in this very dry desert environment. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is where they were moved to. They were moved to very remote, deserty areas. Yeah. Uh, and that did lead in part to some of the sickness that we will see later on, in addition to other factors uh, that happened within these camps. Right. But um, I did want to mention, because I'm at that point in my notes now, about uh, the different camps and who was running them mm-hmm. uh, and what that meant. So Perfect. there were three government. There were three government agencies that ran camps. 90% of the Japanese Americans were in camps run by the War Relocation Authority. And only Japanese Americans lived in the WRA camps. So, and that that's 90% of the people. So 90% mm-hmm. of Japanese Americans were living in Japanese-only camps. Uh, but there were 10% of Japanese Americans who were in mixed-race camps. And these were either run by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, or the United States Army. And many different people were interned in INS and Army camps. And these people included German and Italian immigrants, German Americans and Italian Americans, some refugees, and commercial seamen from Germany and Italy whose ships were taken by the U.S. Navy and passengers of those ships. So uh, to your point that you were saying earlier, the treatment of people within these camps largely did depend on who was running these camps. And as you can imagine, people who were in camps that were being run by the United States Army, uh, the treatment may have been slightly harsher. Because if you're really thinking about it, the military took it very personally, of yes. course, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was a United States um, military base mm-hmm. institution. and. Um, being from a military family, I can say that there is a very you attack one of us, you attack all of us kind of mentality. Yeah, it reminds me of kind of Brothers in Blue a bit. Yes, yeah. And so I can only imagine that there was a lot of racism that went on uh, within these camps that probably affected their treatment. I mean, and that oh, goes yeah. for all the camps, but. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to look at the root of all of this, it really is just racism. In- paranoia fear it's a lot of fear so let's let's talk a little bit of uh, a little bit about conditions inside the camps so internees lived in uninsulated barracks furnished with only cots and coal burning stoves again 
if you watch that fucking video, they're going to make it sound like the government provided them with amazing housing. Oh, yeah. But the truth is, again, they got these houses up uh, or these, you know, cabins really up very, very quickly. There was not a lot of time to ensure that the commission, that the conditions were super humane. So these were uninsulated and these people were living in these homes for years, for years. So they're going through all of the seasons, the extreme heat of the desert and also uh, the cold in the winter. And um, they had cots, again, not real beds typically, and coal-burning stoves. Residents used common bathrooms and laundry facilities, but hot water was usually limited. And again, there are thousands of people on each one of these um, Yeah. Uh, reservations, concentration camps, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And these camps were often surrounded by barbed wire fences patrolled by armed guards who had instructions to shoot anyone who tried to leave. And I say, I underlined this because this is the kind of shit that you're going to start seeing and it will infuriate you if you do any research on this. This is from, and um, most of my information is from an Encyclopedia Britannica article, which is actually a very good article. Uh, Also, history.com, there were a couple of other sources, but this is from the Britannica article, and it says, although there were a few isolated incidents of internees being shot and killed, as well as more numerous examples of preventable suffering, the camps were generally run humanely. Yeah. What the I know. fuck? <laughs> I read that same thing, and that's what I thought as well, because you were like, oh, look at this article, and I read that, and I was like... Uh. <laughs> so it's such it's such a tone deaf thing to say because it's just like I mean listen a couple of the people tried to leave and were shot and killed because that's what happened there are a few documented instances of people obviously wanting their freedom and trying yeah. to leave these camps and being shot by armed guards because yeah. they were being imprisoned I mean that is what it is and um to talk a little bit more about the diseases The camps tried to provide medical care. Very often, the people who worked in the camp hospitals were Japanese-American doctors and nurses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they lived in the internment camps, so they set up their own hospitals and they took care of their own. However, for one, there weren't enough doctors and nurses. And then two, they were not provided with enough medical supplies. Right. So... So there were a lot of preventable diseases and um, the very old and the very young would suffer from these diseases and sometimes pass away from them. So because the camps were so crowded, and this is something we talked about when we discussed some of the camps in Germany that were holding um, Jewish uh, Jewish people in World War II. It's this kind of the same sort of thing or the same way that these diseases spreaded. Because the camps were so crowded, infectious diseases spread very easily, and these diseases included typhoid fever, smallpox, whooping cough, flu, diphtheria, and tuberculosis. The camps were given vaccines to prevent some of these illnesses like typhoid fever and smallpox, but not others. There was also bad sanitation, which would cause outbreaks of food poisoning in many of the camps, which could cause dehydration. And... um, the camps, again, were set in the desert, and many people were not used to living in the desert. So things like asthma, uh, undiagnosed asthma or breathing problems. And uh, at the camps in Arkansas, people actually got malaria from mosquitoes. Oh, my so, gosh. Uh, 
there was a lot of illness and not a lot of resources. You just kind of had to hope that you were strong enough to pull through them. And Man, because sounds of a lot this, like right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, like, I think we all have such a better understanding of how quickly a disease can spread yeah. if you're in close contact with people and they had no choice but to be in close contact with each other. Yeah. And that reminds me of the prisoners in prisons here in the United States right now who are struggling so much because they're on top of each other. And it's it's very much the same thing. Everybody's going to get sick because everybody is on top of each other. We are so health aware now. I'm like, no one was probably washing their hands. There was no And even know. if they were, like we said, the resources were so limited. Hot water was limited. Yeah. You know, you didn't have access to be able to wash your hands 15 times a day like we right. do now or more or whatever. And wipe down your food and make sure your food is sanitary. Like exactly. all of this like this is a feeding ground for sickness. Absolutely. And so because of that, a total of 1,862 people died from medical problems while in the internment camps, almost 2,000 people. Uh, And about one out of every 10 of those people died from tuberculosis, which is a bad way to go. It's a real bad way to go. go. Oh my gosh. Did you know that I used to actually have a very real fear of tuberculosis when I was younger? I didn't, but I mean, if you read it, if you read about tuberculosis whenever you were <laughs> impressionable and young, I yeah. can imagine that it, it probably scared you because it's a scary disease. It is. So I had to do a project on a saint, and I did a project on Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton. I actually have a relic of hers, a little piece of her nun's collar, and I believe it was her husband had died of tuberculosis on their way to the United States. I think because he was sick. And I just remember reading a lot of stories around that time and really researching her for like months and months and just being like, does this still exist? <laughs> like, I don't want this. It does, but it's very rare, you know, to not to go off too much on a side tangent about tuberculosis, but it's actually a very fascinating illness if you look at the history of it, because um, Laura actually did some episodes about kind of um our vampire panic that has happened in the United States and also in Europe. And a lot of the time what people thought was a sign of a vampire was actually people just dying of tuberculosis. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating, um, but also horrifying. Yes. Well, I know what I'll be researching today. Going back to tuberculosis. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that we we think so much, at least for me, when I think about concentration camps and things like that, we we think automatically to the Jewish people and obviously uh, sickness affected them as well. But it is kind of amazing that our country was able to treat a group of people so horribly and have them have these sicknesses and do nothing about it. And that's something that should be surprising, but it's honestly not because right now it's, it's happening again. They don't care that these people who aren't, you know, rich or maybe they aren't as well educated. And in this, and in this case, they look different than uh, what was preferred, which was to be a white person. Um, they weren't given the proper care as everybody else. And that's the reason they died. And that's just so sad. Like they could have gotten the help that they needed and they right. didn't get it. And it's also a fear. I think that fear is probably the biggest thing. And I I think that it's what I just but the thing is, is that when I think about racism or if I think about homophobia 
or anything like that. All of that is based in fear of the unknown, of fear of the different. That's what it is. I just feel like whenever there is a racist act going on, it is based out of ignorance and well, ignorant fear, basically not being educated about what's actually going on and blaming a race of people. Well, and in this case, I would say in this case, and also whenever you're talking about what really ramped up, amped up fear um, or the anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust. And even if you're talking about what's going on with our situation with people being detained at the border, all of that, I would say more than it just being a fear of the unknown, you have people instilling this very real fear that they are here to change your way of life or take something from you. Yeah. And I think, I think that um, a lot of the Islamic panic is very similar to that too. After nine 11, it was this fear of clumping every group of people together. And that, well, if one person from this group did something bad, they're all bad and none of them should be trusted. Right. You, you have a fear for your safety, which you feel like is, and in, in so many ways, that's even more insidious because yeah. you can rationalize it, right? You can tell yourself that your fear is justified um, because of this thing that has happened. And it, in that way, it makes You're it You're protecting okay. yourself. Yeah. Right. It makes it okay for you to do whatever you're doing. So yeah, go ahead, round, round them up and put them in in camps because I'm justified in being afraid that they could kill me or my family right? Uh, or destroy our country yeah. um, without really taking the time to parse that out and educate yourself on, on this issue. Mm-hmm. So um, the internment internees, so the internees lived in family groups and they set up churches, farms, and even newspapers. They really did their best to create communities and they even created governments in some of these camps, kind of. So while these camps were guarded from the outside, um, what went on inside the camps was really kind of left up to the internees, to the people who were living there. So they were in charge of education. They were in charge of the the smaller, quote unquote, forms of government that went on inside the camps. Right. Um, in 1944, the Supreme Court ruled, and so this is like three years later, in 1944, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Korematsu versus the United States that evacuation and internment was not unconstitutional. So they brought a case uh, to try and be like, hey, this isn't okay. We can't be doing this. A lot of these people are U.S. citizens. And in addition to that, to a lot of them being U.S. citizens, there were uh, a large number of them who actually left the camps to fight in World War II voluntarily. And they were all put in the same regiment or a large number. Very often regiments were broken up by race, which is real fucked up. Um, But there was one particular regiment that a lot of these people from this camps, these camps went into that was a largely Japanese American regiment that actually ended up being at the end of World War II, the most decorated regiment. Yeah. In World War II, um, which should really go to show. I think that they were trying so desperately to prove their patriotism 
mm-hmm. and their loyalty to yeah. our country. Well, and it's interesting because they not only did that with the military, but they did that with sports as well. Um, this is something that I was already kind of aware of because Max has watched this one baseball documentary so many times that I feel like I've had it like it somehow memorized in my brain. But um, there were a lot of Japanese baseball teams, Japanese American baseball teams. And it's actually really cool. Max has been buying some of those vintage hats online from the Japanese baseball teams and some of the Negro leagues and things like that. It's really fascinating. Um, But obviously, baseball is like as American as apple pie. It's as American as you can get. So in January of 1942, Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued what came to be known as the green light letter to MLB commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, which urged him to continue playing Major League Baseball games despite the ongoing war. In it, Roosevelt said that baseball provides a recreation, and this was true for Japanese-American incarcerees as well. Over 100 baseball teams were formed in the Manzanar camp so that Japanese-Americans could have some recreation, and some of the team names were carryovers from teams formed over incarceration. So a lot of times these like baseball teams were formed in these camps, and I just find that interesting because it's like you're saying that these people are so un-American, and at this time, baseball was the epitome of what it meant to be an American, I feel like. Nowadays, it's kind of like football. But back then, it was like baseball all the way, you know? So I feel like it's interesting. It's almost like they were showing their patriotism through that as well and through their education. There's pictures of young kids doing the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, I feel like this just proved that these people are Americans. You know what I mean? Like, baseball doesn't mean you're American. But you know what I mean? It's, It's just like, look, we are just like you. And I think it's so cool that these teams that were formed in such horrible conditions would go on to become these amazing American historical moments in sports, you know? Yeah. And I I do think that they tried one. I think that again, two thirds of these people were American born citizens. They were born in this country. They were as American as anybody else, um, and thought of themselves as American. So there was that, um, But in addition to that, I think more than just knowing that they're Americans, they wanted to prove it. You know what I mean? In in any way that they could, because they were just like, I I can only imagine what that must feel like to feel like your country is turned on you. You know what I mean? Uh, And you're trying so desperately to prove that you're loyal. And uh, along those lines, so at the same time, about that the Korematsu versus United States uh, case, which concluded that evacuation and internment was not unconstitutional, uh, unconstitutional around that time, the government had begun also to investigate Japanese Americans more closely on kind of an individual basis. And they concluded that most of them were loyal Americans and individuals who were certified as loyal were allowed to leave the camps, usually to take jobs in the Midwest or in the East. So they were like, we still don't want you to go back to the West Coast, but feel free to take a job in the Midwest or uh, the East. And it was also at this time when those who were quote unquote, certified loyal were allowed to leave and fight in the war effort. They're like, oh, sorry about that, about thinking that you were maybe a spy. Would you like to die for your country? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so fucked up. (laughs) But your face when you said that, though, was just great. Would you like to die for your country now? 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to maybe super prove how loyal you are by going and dying for the country that just put you in a prison camp? Right. Like for real, for real. Super fucked up. Uh, So so you keep going. Nope. You go. Oh, you're good. Okay. Um, on December 18th, 1944, the government announced that all relocation centers would be closed by the end of 1945. So this went on basically for mm, almost four years-ish or like, yeah, three and a half years or so people were living in these camps, uh, in these communities. And again, I think it's a good time to have this conversation because so many of us are experiencing what having our lives kind of like uprooted feels like. Yeah. And having your but at least we're getting to do it from the comfort of our homes right right whereas like they were being completely uprooted from everything they knew their lives everything other events things that they wanted to do were being completely put uh on hold or thrown away and then they were forced into these living situations for three years ish right um at this point but so the government was like okay we're going to close all these relocation centers in 1945 and um the but the last of the camps was a high security camp which i don't even know what that means i didn't even i wish i had like actually looked that up to see what the difference was between a regular camp and a high security camp but there was a high security camp at tule lake or tool lake yeah california and it was closed in March of 1946. So it closed like a year later. Not quite a year, but like, yeah, like four months later than yeah. um, they initially had said. Well, and it's it's interesting because there were some Japanese Latin Americans that were brought to the U.S. from places like Peru and other Latin American countries. And they were held for a long time. They actually had to take legal action in April of 1946 in an attempt to avoid depart- deportation to Japan, which is crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Can you imagine? Because so a, a lot of these people, I'm sure, were immigrants or maybe second generation immigrants to Latin America from Japan in the first place, but their home is Latin America. And then they've been uprooted, sent to North America, and then facing the possibility of being uprooted again yeah. and sent to Japan. That's right. it's so upsetting. And then the way that this was handled after this They've held these people for three to four years, and the people who were placed in the camps were given $25 each and a bus ticket home from the United States government. Yeah. Yeah. They were sent home, and they were oftentimes sent home to homes that no longer exist. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was the thing is that they gave away all of their possessions and so many of their white neighbors were saying, yes, we will look after your things. We'll look after your cars. We'll make sure everything is fine. But of course they didn't follow through with any of that. So when they came home to their lives, they realized that so many of their possessions and their homes were just gone. Well, and I know for me, this would breed so much distrust of of the people of the United States, yeah. of the United States in general, I don't know that I would even want to live here anymore. I would like to see, and I didn't look this up because I didn't think about it until right now, but I would really like to see what the numbers were of people who were like, goodbye yeah, from, from the U.S. after this. That's a really good point. Um, or if they were so desperate at that point to prove 
to people that they were loyal, that they just stayed put. Yeah. I wonder if uh, also going back to their lives or going to another country, I wonder if there was fear in that as well. You know, maybe it was easier for them to just stay put where maybe they had some family or they had their lives because for some of these people, they were, they weren't first generation Americans. They've been living there with their families for so long. You know, I can understand why they would want to stay put. Well, and I can imagine what it would look like or what they might think it would look like for them to go back to Japan. Yeah. You know, after they've just been accused of being disloyal or being spies for yeah, Japan. It would, it would look really suspicious going immediately back. Right. That's exactly. Exactly. So I'm not sure what it looked like. I would be very interested. I know that George Takai um, lived in one of these camps yeah. as a little kid. Um, and he has talked a lot about his experience. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe he was even in a play about this on Broadway. Um, wow. So that is something that I would like to look into more because I wonder if he talked at all about what going back to your life was like Yeah. after this, because that would be very interesting to me. In a lot of the articles I read, of course, the articles are focused on the internment, uh, what brought it about, what life was like inside the camps, and right. not so much individual stories of what life was like afterwards. Um, in fact, I, I can't really find much about what life was like when people went back home. The next thing that I found was that in 1976, so 30 years later, President Gerald Ford officially repealed Executive Order 9066. So 30 years later, yeah, that, that executive order that basically allowed the government to decide um, if a group of people were a threat and that, that we could take them and move them and detain them onto camps. Right. Um, that wasn't repealed until 1976. And he made a statement at that time and he said, February 19th is the anniversary of a sad day in American history. It was on that date in 1942 that Executive Order 9066 was issued, resulting in the uprooting of loyal Americans. We now know what we should have known then. Not only was that evacuation wrong, but Japanese Americans were and are loyal Americans. I call upon the American people to affirm with me this American promise that we have learned from the tragedy of that long ago experience forever to treasure liberty and justice for each individual American and resolve that this kind of action will never again be repeated. Good. Too little too late. It was 30 years. But, you know, we have a we have a president currently who is not able to admit uh, his own mistakes or the mistakes that his country has made. So to see people within our government taking it seriously enough to apologize, I think is great. Um, uh, yes. But obviously the, too little too late. <laughs> uh, yeah, the damage is done. It can't be undone. Yeah. Uh, the trauma that you inflicted upon an entire generation, several generations of Japanese Americans uh, is lasting and will never go away. Uh -huh. But it, it is good to see that this government is capable of not only admitting that they're wrong, but actually trying to make strides to make sure one, that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Uh, and two, they did give more than 80,000 Japanese Americans who had experienced this 
parents $20,000 each to compensate them for their for the ordeal that they suffered. So they were given $25 and a plane uh, and a bus ticket home right. uh, after the camps closed, but in 19 and that was in 1988. In 1988, My so gosh. just a couple years before I was born. Yeah. Um the is when Congress passed the Civil Liberties Act which awarded the $20,000 to these people and not that $20,000 can make up for the pain and suffering no. of these people. But given that our government still can't fucking give reparations yeah. to um, African-Americans and didn't give what they owed African-Americans at the time of emancipation, which exactly. was 40 acres and a mule, it's, it's progress, I guess, <laughs> to see that they're able to do that. Um and there was also a presidential commission in 1982 that that identified race prejudice, war hysteria, and failure of political leadership as the underlying causes of the government's internment program. So yeah. you can watch this. You can watch this video that I keep talking about, where it's you know United States war propaganda, where they're saying you know all these great things, and this is why we're doing it. But in 1982. A presidential commission was like, no, no, no. We we looked into this, and it's very clear that it was racial prejudice, hysteria, and just failure at the top that caused this to happen. In Again, the first place. thank God, thank God, somebody said it and admitted to it because I think that America is such a proud country, especially in its leaders, that it's hard for people to say, "Look, we messed up," and I think it's really great that they did that. Absolutely. And I also think, you know, when we talked about our murdered and missing indigenous women uh, episode and we talked about how in Canada they did do an internal investigation as to how and why this is happening. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is something therapeutic and necessary for a group of people to hear not only an apology, like I don't just want an apology. I want you to actually tell me that this was not for the good of America. This was because you were hysterical and racist. Yes. Like, I, I need you to tell me that. Um, I think that there's something mentally that, that happens whenever you hear someone take responsibility in that way. There is, and that's why it's so important. You know, that's why we teach children why it's important to apologize. It's important for us to learn from our mistakes, to acknowledge the things that we've done wrong and move forward. That's the only way we're going to grow as a country. So while none of this should have happened in the first place and the racism in the history of this country is disgusting on so many levels for so many different minority groups, but the fact that they were actually able to stand up and say something is how we are going to change things in the future. So it's the same thing as right now with how Chinese people are being treated. It's important for us to speak up to give the facts and to stand up for these people. I actually just heard um, from my friend Ricky this morning that one of his classes, not the one that he was in, but another one of his classmates was in a Zoom class where it was like hacked into and somebody started screaming at a Chinese student, just horrible things. And we have to stand up and defend these people and say outwardly that we do not agree with the government because we don't want to have to look back on this years later, 30 years down the line and apologize, you know? Right. Well, and honestly, because I'm sure that there were people at the time who were like, this is crazy. This is madness. Um, but the government did what the government did and the government right now 
in response to this virus is doing things that are very racist towards uh, Chinese Americans specifically, but Asian Americans broadly uh, in general. And because of that, I think it's super important that there are internal investigations where we can have an objective party say, no, the government was wrong. The government was wrong, you know. Definitely. Well, and, you know, it's going to be really interesting with this being an election year as well. How are they going to prevent, uh, you know, liberal Democrats and minorities from voting during this time? You know, it's going to be really interesting to see how the government reacts to all of this. And, you know, that's really where my mind was when we were talking about a lot of this. How how are the lessons from history and in our past? How are they going to shape how we react today? And I think that the apology is something to be admired in this sad, horrible story. Because I think that there is something to be learned about taking responsibility for our actions, whether it be something horrible that we've done or whether it be something really minor. I think that as a country and as a world, we're only going to improve when we are able to recognize our mistakes and want to build a better world instead of saying that we've never done anything wrong. Right. And I also think it's important for us to continue to have these conversations about subjects like this, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people are unaware of this. Like it's not something that is taught in schools or it wasn't whenever I was um, in school. I know that I learned about it probably in high school in passing or something. Right. uh, You know, with access to the Internet. But it is not something that we have widespread knowledge of. It's not something we as a country talk about very Mm -hmm. much. And I feel like the United States likes to pride itself, especially after World War II, um, when we were part of the Allied Forces and we liberated um, France and we did all these things. I feel like we like to pride ourselves on being... Heroes. On being heroes. Yeah. 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 On being the liberators. Yeah. Well, especially during World War II as well. I feel like we like to be seen as the heroes of World War II. And that's why this isn't discussed. Because why would you mention this in history books to our children where we are trying to raise patriotic American children? By saying that we made this mistake, that's not going to make patriotic children, you know? That's right. Yeah, because right now, like, yeah, they don't want to turn the spotlight on, like, the fact that, yes, we didn't have we didn't have extinction camps. That wasn't the objective of these camps. Right. But we still rounded up people based on fear, hysteria and paranoia at the exact same time at the exact same time in Germany when it was happening as well. And that's the thing is that as a child, I think I would have had a very different perspective of World War II had I had all of the information. I even saw Pearl Harbor and didn't know about all of this stuff. Had I had all the information, I think that it would have changed a lot of um, our generation's perspectives on America. And I think that our perspective changed pretty quickly in 2001 anyways. But, uh, (laughs) you know. Well, I mean, yeah. Look at how many World War II movies there are. There yeah. are approximately a million World War II movies. Yeah. And I can't think of a single one that focuses on this story. Uh, Not same. one. If you guys know of any movies that focuses on this story, please let us know and we will watch it during this time. Because if there isn't a movie already, maybe Keegan and I should make one. I don't know. Send us money. We'll make you a decent film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll start an Indiegogo or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
<sighs> well, I'm glad that we got through this. I think it was a really important conversation. And I really want to hear from all the listeners that there are more groups of people that you would like us to discuss that we haven't covered already. I know there's probably so much. Obviously, we are more aware of what goes on in the United States, but for people from other countries, if you want to talk, if you want us to talk about things that have happened there in your culture, please let us know. Uh, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or you can message us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. Um, blah, 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 blah. Why am I already blanking on everything? We have a Facebook and business and group page. You can rate and review us on our business page and you can chat with your fellow listeners on the group page. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Why? A. N. F podcast. We did it. Uh, let's see. You can. Did I already say? Wow. I'm totally blowing it this time. My mind is like blank. <laughs> You're fine. You said Facebook business and group page. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Did you say that? Did not say um, it. We love getting your reviews. It's some of our favorite, the favorite, our very favorite things. It's one of my favorite um, things. It's my, one of my favorite things as well. <laughs> I'm just going to start saying that to save on time. It's a favorite thing. <laughs> you can also listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit. Thank I would you also for helping like, us <laughs> helping me get through that, Keegan. Yeah, no problem. And I would also like to say that if you do have specific groups, especially from other countries that you want us to talk about, um, not only email us or DM us on Instagram with those suggestions, but also if you could provide us with good links or sources, oh, yeah. um, we would love that, especially for foreign articles. Because I remember last year when we were doing uh, Latin, America. Latin American History Month, it was really hard because yeah. so many of the sources were in Spanish and had to be translated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I felt like I was missing things in translation. So if you have any great articles um, that you would like to provide us with, we are always super open and down for that. Oh, yeah. And we've got a few suggestions lately about things to discuss on the What's in the News episodes. We really appreciate that as well. Continue bringing that to our attention because, you know, maybe Keegan and I are more concerned about one area where everybody else is concerned about another. So we're not touching on things that we should be. So um, thank you to those who have brought those to our attention and continue to do so. I'm making notes in my phone for all different kinds of things we can talk about. So all good stuff. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. We really appreciate it. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage. To rage on. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.